Welcome. I'm glad that you uh, have chosen to join us this weekend at Seacoast. I want to take this opportunity to welcome uh, all of our campuses, including the Long Point campus. Usually I speak live from Long Point, but this weekend I am in Asheville with uh, Craig and Jeanette Schnook and uh, Rob Williams and the team doing a great job. And in Asheville, uh, they're getting ready to make a transition from a movie theater to a semi-permanent facility. So let's give Asheville a hand. Do you want to do that? All right. All right. And I want to welcome those of you who are um, maybe at a venue or on a podcast or wherever you happen to be. Uh, We're glad that you're along also. We're in a series that we started a couple of weeks ago called Why Aren't You Dead Yet? Kind of a strange sounding title, but I liked it. It seems to be doing okay. We talked about the fact that there are several reasons why you're not dead yet. The first one is that God wants to do something significant through you. If you still have a pulse, if you're still alive, God's plan and His purpose is not completed. And uh, chances are, uh, perhaps even the most significant thing that God wants to do through you uh, is yet to be done. And then last week we talked about the relational component of why you're not dead yet. That God wants to do something significant relationally through you. And we talked just a little bit about community. And this weekend I want to talk about a financial component. And that's this, that God wants to do something significant financially uh, through you. Now, some of you, I recognize the look. Uh, when, when I mention finances or money, you know, you kind of put on the uh, um, let, let's ignore button, you know, or the, the radar that says, I'm not sure I want to listen to this. You know, I've been around for 21 years, nearly here at Seacoast. And, um, you know, every time I talk about money, sex, or uh, death, uh, some of you look at me like, you know, a, a deer in the headlights, kind of a, kind of a blank stare, because you're thinking, you know, there's uh, two out of those three aren't good, and uh, so I'm not sure I want to listen. And it's okay today, okay, relax, it's okay, I'll, it, it's all good. I want to talk to you about some strategic investments that God uh, is making, has made it, is going to make in you, and then what our response can be to, to that. You know, it's always amazing to me uh, some of the things that we invest our money in. Would you agree with that? In fact, I found this. Um, I was actually cruising through the offices uh, just across the street from the Long Point campus, and uh, I found this in one of our pastor's offices. I'm not going to tell you who it is. His initials are actually Jason Surratt. And um, w- what it is, it's, it's kind of a Jeep. It's got a couple of hunters with their bright orange hats and bobbleheads and then on the front of it, you've got a, a dead deer, uh, actually, or apparently a dead deer, uh, strapped to the front of the Jeep. Only in South Carolina would the preacher have one of these. And, and the, I wonder how much it cost and why anybody would buy this. And uh, then I found out that it does more than just kind of sit there and look. Uh, this, uh, well, well, I'll show you. The, the deer actually sings the national anthem. Watch this. Turn it up. Mm-hmm. Turn it up. The deer is singing it. Look at this. Look at this. That is awesome. That is awesome. I, I don't know about you, but uh, I wish I would have created that. Uh, I'm not sure what for, but uh, <laughs> we... 
We invest, we invest in all kinds of different things, uh, don't we? And would you agree with me on this, that there are a lot of people who are pretty uptight about, about money, about finances these days. In fact, I found a recent study uh, published by the BBC, uh, and it was an article that they called Financial Phobia. And apparently, uh, it said in Britain, one of five Britons suffer from financial phobia, which means that they're unable to handle personal finances, according uh, to the research. Um, I went on and read the article, and, and uh, about 20% of the people in Britain, evidently, just get really freaked out uh, when they deal with anything having to do with finances. Freaked out when they go into a bank, freaked out when they have to balance their checking account or look at a bill. And uh, they said that actually about 9 million people are impacted by that. Maybe you know somebody like that. I mean, finances are just a little bit frightening these days. Most people in our culture are struggling. Most of us would be happy to pay as we go if we could only catch up to where we've been. Would you agree with that? You know, we're, we're very, very upset, very concerned about the economy. And, and we're tempted to just kind of hunker down and hold on to everything that we have. And the idea that God has great plans, that God wants to do something significant through you and through each one of us in our finances really isn't even on our radar. Uh, because we're saying, you know, how can God have plans for my money when I need every penny that I've got right now? Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you feel like that uh, right now. Well, in the, in the Bible, there's a story of a guy who no doubt uh, has some of those same uh, feelings. It's found in Matthew chapter 25, and it's actually a parable. A parable is just simply a story that Jesus told to prove a point. And in Matthew 25, he tells uh, two or three uh, stories and parables, and they're actually about the end times, and they are actually about Jesus. He's, you know, uh, one of the main characters, as you'll kind of see. And uh, uh, the other characters are ordinary people like you and I. In fact, it's meant to kind of perk our interest and have our hearts come alongside and kind of see where we are. So I'm going to read the story and I'd like you to kind of read along and maybe see if you recognize anybody or any issues in the story. At the end, we'll pull out some lessons for today's economy. It's Matthew 25, verse 14. It's on your outline sheet or if you have a Bible or a phone or wherever that you happen to to have to follow along, or maybe you want to do that on the screen. Jesus said again, and again, because this is like the second or third story. He says, it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey. And that's him. He's talking about himself. Who calls his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. You guys, most of you are familiar with this story. When I talked about, when it said the word talent, you kind of went, well, I can track with that, you know, five, three, and one. I've heard the story before. One of the more, you know, known or popular stories in the, in the Bible. You, did you know how much a talent was? It says that he gave one, one talent according to his ability, and then three and five. Um, a talent was actually a significant amount of money. In fact, the guy that he gave one talent to, in today's economy, if you kind of transposed it back to then, uh, that would be the equivalent of 20 years worth of wages. 
It was $500,000. Between, you know, the, the researchers say between four hundred fifty and $600,000. So we'll just say half a million dollars. One talent. So the guy that had three talents, what's that? $1.5 million. The guy that had five talents, the owner gave him $2.5 million. So the owner was evidently significantly wealthy. And it says that he gave them to each one of them according to their ability. We'll come back and kind of footnote that a little bit later. Verse 16 says, The man who had received the five talents went at once, and he put his money to work and gained five more. And so also the one with two talents gained two more. And the one, did I say three? (laughs) Uh, Two. It probably should have been three, but it's actually two. Um, And the man who received one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. What's up with that? We're not just talking about motives. We'll, we'll deal with those. But why would anybody take half a million dollars, dig a hole in the ground, and, and put it in? You, you need to know about where they live. Very few banks. Very few. It wasn't like you could go to the corner and, you know, if you're on your way to Walmart or whatever in those days, they just didn't have that many banks. Not, not that many Walmarts, actually. And uh, so oftentimes people took things that were valuable or important and they would dig a hole and they'd bury it. So that's what this guy did. He took half a million dollars, 20 years wages, and he buried it. After a long time, after a long time, here just kind of off the subject, but just for our information, Jesus is talking about himself and he's, he's kind of setting, setting up the fact that it may be a while until he returns again to the people he's talking to. Uh, He says, after a long time, he says, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought another five. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with five talents, $2.5 million. And see, I have gained five more, $5 million. This guy has uh, has to return to the master. Um, And uh, uh, the master said to him, uh, well, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. <laughs> Imagine he was happy. And then the next verse says, The man who had two talents also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then verse 24, And then the man who had received the one talent came, and Master, he said, I I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. And see, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. He doesn't say, you know, that's a problem. You know, that's, that's an issue. No, he says, you're wicked, man. You're lazy and wicked, he says. And so you knew that I, so you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Now this guy, that's not true of God. It wasn't true of his master. And it's, it's as if the master is kind of, kind of making a, kind of giving it back to him and say, saying, oh, so that's what you thought, huh? Well, it's not true, but that's what you thought. So, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Forever has 
will be given more. And he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him and thrown. And and, and now throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Interesting story. Huge, huge implications. So let's dig in and see what we can learn. What are the principles? What are the lessons that we can apply to ourselves as far as how God wants to use us and our resources in this story of the talents? Let me give you the first one that I thought. I thought, you know what? Here's the deal. You've been given everything that you need to be successful in life. You have been given everything that you need to be successful in life. You know, the, the servants didn't need more money. I mean, that wasn't the issue at all. Uh, the one that had one talent didn't need more opportunity. He had plenty. I mean, half a million dollars to invest had the same amount of time, the, the same amount of, uh, of resources proportionally to his talent. Um, he didn't need anything else to be successful, but he wasn't. You don't need anything else but what you have right now in order to be successful. You don't need more money. You don't need more opportunity. You don't need more breaks. You have everything that you need to be successful in life. Maybe we should just de- de- uh, you know, kind of define what it means to be successful in life. And how I'll define it is this, is that um, you have everything that you need to accomplish the will of God in your lifetime. That's success to me. Accomplishing the will of God before you die. And so my point is, you have everything that you need. You have exactly enough talent to accomplish His will. You have exactly enough money, enough time, enough resources, and enough ability. The point of the story is, it's not what you have that's important. It's what you do with what you've been given. You know, as I thought about that, I thought, what gets us off track from really pursuing what God has for us and maximizing the talent, the ability, the time, the treasure, whatever it happens to be in our own life? What gets us off track? And I I thought about a couple of things. The first is the first thing that gets us off track is when we begin to complain about what we don't have. You ever hear anybody talking like that? I, you know, I'd be more successful, or I could do better, whatever it happens to be in school, or in sports, or at work, or investing, or in, in life in general. It, I, I, you know, it, I, I got just, God just hasn't given me very much. He hasn't given me much money, talent, ability. Moses, when God called him a couple of weeks ago, and what did Moses say? Great idea, God, but I can't speak. I just don't have the stuff that it takes. You know, and for him to have that mindset, he wouldn't have been able to accomplish what God had for him. So God had to kind of correct his thinking in that whole deal. And so the, the, the first thing that happens is that we complain about what we don't have, and then oftentimes we quit. The second thing that gets us off track is this, is when we covet what someone else does have. We complain about what we don't have and we covet what someone else does have. Why do they get all the breaks? Well, I wish I had their luck. Uh, you know, I wish I had the opportunities. Yeah, I, I, they work hard, all right, but boy, they got this break and that break and that break and that break. And, should, and, and, and what we're saying is we're, we're saying I might not I, just as well that I don't even try. 
Comparison will always get you in trouble. Some, someone said about the time you catch up with the Joneses, they refinance. You know, what a, what a bummer. <laughs> Somebody else said, just drag them down to your level. It's, it's a lot cheaper. And I, I don't think either one of those are, are good. But in both cases, whether you're complaining about what you've been given or, or you're coveting what somebody else has been giving, you're believing a lie. You know, a lie about yourself that you don't have enough and you deserve more. It's a lie about God. And the servant believed a lie about God, that God wasn't fair, that God was rough, or that, that God, you know, it certainly wasn't fair in his dealings with men. He wasn't going to be fair in his dealings with him. And we believe those types of lies. And I believe this. I believe that when a Christian, a truly born-again believer, underachieves in life, it's usually more of a thinking problem than it is an opportunities problem. It's, it's, it's more about what we think than about what the circumstances are. The problem with the unfaithful servant was not that he didn't have enough. It was that he thought the wrong things about what he did have. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 and verse 3 are just some powerful foundational verses uh, to Christian living and thinking in this area. Paul, who apparently wrote the book of Romans, says this, don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will know what God wants you to do, and you will know how good and pleasing and perfect His will really is. Listen to this. As, a, as God's messenger, He says, I give each of you this warning. Be honest in your estimate of yourselves. Measuring measuring your value by how much faith that God has given you. He says, you know what? If you're going to be successful in life, if you're going to accomplish God's will as David did and then die and go be with Him, uh, you're going to have to change your thinking. You can't be copying the world. You've got to be transformed in your thinking by the Word of God. Then he says, be careful in your estimation of yourself. Some people estimate themselves way too low. You know people like that. You know, it's always, you know, woe is me and I can't do it. And they they shoot way low on, on what God could do through them. Other people estimate way too high. You know, if you need evidence of that, have you watched American Idol lately? I mean, who told some of those people they could sing, you know? Some of it, I know it's a game just to get on television, but some of those people are broken-hearted. And they couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. The, the estimation of ability. We all don't have the same ability. I don't have, you know, the ability of a Martin Chalk who leads worship here to, uh, to, to sing. I'm pretty good, you know. Well, actually not. <laughs> so the kids said, Dad, you could throw the whole stadium off singing the national anthem. You know, don't sing very loud. But I, I, I don't have a lot of ability in that area, and so I, I've just got to have a, a wise estimation of what my abilities are and in life. What's my level of faith? I, I don't want to think too highly or too lowly of myself. God gives different sized piles of talent, of treasure, of just stuff. Don't sweat it. You've been, listen, you've been given exactly the right amount to do what God has called you to do. Think about that. 
You've been given exactly the right amount, just enough. The problem is that you don't have enough. You've got just enough to accomplish God's will and to be successful in life before you die. So it's important to stop and own that. It's not how much you have. It's what you do with what you have. Because the second principle is this. Someday you will have to answer the question, what did you do with what I gave you? The master came back and he said, okay, what did you do with the stuff that I gave? The owner expected a return on his investment. And God invests in us. Everything that we have is his. You know, don't get too proud about your talent or what you have or whatever. It's all God's. It's on loan from God. And and God gives it to us and and then he expects a return on his investment. How did you invest what I gave you to enhance the growth of the kingdom? So, what has God given each of us that He's going to expect a return on? Three things. Time, talent, and treasure. It's given each one of us time. It's given each one of us certain talents. He's given each one of us treasure, certain stuff, money that we're responsible for. And what He's going to do is He's going to ask, what did you do? with what I gave you. And so what we need to do is manage each of those so that our lives result in enhanced growth to the kingdom of God. So how do you manage the three T's for maximum return? There's lots of good management principles out there, and I'm not going to give you a management lesson. So I was thinking about that this week, of how crucial and how important this message is and the story that we read and the fact that we're all going to give an account to God and that I'm going to give an account to God for you. I thought, what are the, what are, what are the crucials? What are the most important? And I kind of distill it down to two management principles. And I think if you'll do these two, that you'll get a good return on the investment that God has made in you. You'll be able to stand before Him someday and hopefully He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Here they are. The first one is this. Put God first in everything. Put God first in your time. Put God first in your talent. Put God first in your treasure. Put God first in everything. In another passage of Scripture, Jesus was teaching the disciples about how to live a worry-free life. How many of you would like one of those? Do you know what? It's available. It was available to them. It's available to us. And so Jesus is teaching them, and he, and he says this. He says, guys, he says, we're kind of outside. I want you to look around. He says, look at the birds of the air. He said, there's not a one of them that sows a crop and, and then waters it and, and then, you know, uh, harvests it. And they don't even own barns. But God takes care of them. And how much more important are you than the birds of the air? then he looks around and he sees a field full of flowers and he says, those flowers look pretty good, don't you think? He says, those flowers actually look a lot better than you do. (laughs) So they look a lot better than Solomon in his greatest splendor, a lot better than you. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and just tell him, I've seen weeds that look better than you. Would you just do that real real quick? That's encouraging, isn't it? (laughs) But Jesus says, "Here's, here's this field of flowers and they look great. And they don't do a thing. God clothes them. How much more does He want to clothe you? And then He gives the key in Matthew 6, 31. He says, don't worry. And ask yourself, will we have anything to eat? Will we have anything to drink? 
will we have any clothes to wear? Only people who don't know God are always worrying about such things. Your Father in heaven knows that you need all of these. But more than anything else, put God's work first and do what He wants. And then the other things will be yours as well. Just a couple of thoughts about that scripture. He says that, you know, one of the indicators of being a Christian is that you trust God with some of these things. He said, he said uh, the, the fact that, that we worry, spend a lot of time worrying about, you know, the things that we need, says that we might not have as strong a relationship with God as, as we need. He says that, that those outside of, of the faith uh, worry about those. He, he says more than anything else, number one, the highest principle is put God first and the work of God first and do what He wants and then everything else will be given to you. The question that I have is how do you put God's work first? Simple. You give Him the first of everything. You give Him the best in the first part of your time. You give Him the best in the first part of your talent. You give Him the best in the first part of your treasure rather than leftovers. Have you ever given God leftovers? Have you? Well, I got a little bit left at the end and so I'll kind of give it to God. That's not putting God first. He says, put God first in everything. Now, how do you do that? Financially, Malachi 3 tells us, Malachi 3.10 says this, I am the Lord God all-powerful, and I challenge you to put me to the test. Bring the entire tithe or bring the entire 10% of your resources into the storehouse, the local church, so there will be food in my house. And then I will open the windows of heaven and flood you with blessing after blessing. It's an incredible promise. God says, if you will put me first in your resources, if you'll, if you'll, and he says, hey, by the way, go ahead and test me on this. See if it's not true. Put it to the test. If you'll just tithe so that there'll be plenty for the local church because the local church is the hope of the world, okay? The local church is the place where God works out of. The local church is the hope of the communities, that we live in. The local church is the hope of the families in our neighborhood. And so he says, make sure that you give a tithe to the local church and test me on this and see if it's not true. You try it and see if I don't bless you. I did a little research this week and I asked the question. I sat down as I read this and I thought, how many Christians actually tithe? And so I went to Google, you know. Praise God for Google. How many of you praise God for, okay, not very many, okay. I do. It's great research. But uh, I, said, I, I just typed in there, how many Christians tithe? Here's some of the, here's some of the research that, that came back. Uh, 32%. We're just talking about evangelical Christians here. In other words, you know, there's a lot of people that call themselves Christians, but kind of evangelicals are kind of the radicals of the crew. And it makes up about 40% maybe of the, uh, you know, Christians in, in America, I think. And so... 32% of evangelicals claim that they tithe. They say, yeah, I do. Only 12% really do. In fact, Christians today give less comparatively than Christians during the Great Depression. I've read some books on the Great Depression, and we're in a recession, and it's serious business right now. We're all impacted by it. But gang, to be honest with you, this is kindergarten compared with what our grandfathers and great-grandfathers went through 
uh, during the Great Depression. I mean, it, it was just terrible, horrible. And the truth is, Christians today give less comparatively than Christians during the Great Depression. Another uh, fact that I found is that the more money that you make, the less likely you are to tithe. Sometimes we say, well, you know what? When I get more money, I'll, I'll sure do that. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, this was interesting. If all of the Christians went on welfare and then started to tithe, church offerings would go up by 30%. <laughs> That was interesting. I don't know what it says, but it's interesting. Here's here's 37% of evangelical Christians don't give anything to their local church. 37%. Now, what what if we all put God first in our resources? What if we all said, okay, I'm going to take God to the, to the test and I'm going to put him first in my resources and I'm going to tithe to the local church? What difference could we make? This is what stirred me. I found out that there are about 35,000 children who die daily around the world. Most of them die from preventable poverty issues and situations. Of the financial cost to end, if we just put it in finances, the financial cost to end this, this Holocaust among children um, uh, would be about $2.5 billion. That's the amount that uh, Americans spend yearly on chewing gum. $2.5 billion. Uh, $7 billion uh, would give primary education to kids around the world. 70 to $80 billion would impact world po- poverty. If, if Christians, evangelical Christians, tithe to their local church, we could do all of that and still have about $400 billion to do more good in the world if Christians would just put God first by tithing. Wow. So I want to challenge you. Um, I've been doing this for the 21 years that we've been here, and I don't apologize for it. We've seen the benefit in the kingdom of God. We've seen the benefit in our own own lives and our own selves. And I want to challenge you to take a tithing challenge. Take the next 90 days and say, God, I'm going to invest the next 90 days. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to put you to the test. I'm going to tithe and see if, uh, see if you're worse off for it. And uh, we've said for, for years around here, if you can show us that you're worse off for having tithe, then, then we'll give you your money back. I feel that strongly about it. Now, I want to, I want to read you a note. We did this about a year and a half ago, I think, during a, a How to Be Rich series. And I got a note just recently, just the other day, from uh, Heather who goes to the Irmo campus. And she says this. She says, I just wanted to let you know about the past year for me and my family. Last year I sat in church and listened intently as you spoke of hard times and the recession. I had always kind of tithed a little bit in churches. Tithed a little bit, that's an interesting concept. You know, but we all kind of have that. In other words, she gave some. Um, But never was it consistent or substantial or even from the heart. I'd drop a few bucks in the offering plate as it went down the aisles. To be honest, I'd give something mainly to keep the usher from staring me down and making me feel like a loser. <laughs> loser. <laughs> then I started attending Seacoast. I was relieved more than I can say about the offering boxes at the back of the church. There was no pressure. I could put something in that box or walk on past. No one was ever there watching me walk past or damning me to hell for not giving that week. It was a wonderful feeling. 
Then last year, in the middle of an unemployment and hard times, you challenged us to tithe faithfully. You said, even said that after three months, if we felt as if we'd not been blessed by our offerings, then, we could, then you would return our money. Who does that? Wow. I told everyone I knew. <laughs> I thought you were either entirely crazy. Okay, that was my first thought, she says. <laughs> she might be right. Or that maybe, just maybe, you knew something the rest of us didn't. Members of the church I used to attend agreed with me that you were crazy. Don't worry, it's turned out to be a good thing. That day, you also mentioned that you could donate online. Hey, that was right up my alley. I never carry a checkbook with me, so, uh, so I, I hadn't had a debit card swipe, or I hadn't seen a debit card swiper in the back of the church. This was my answer to forgetfulness. So I went home and prayed. And during this time, I was going through a divorce, not receiving any support. My company is totally dependent on cash flow and the economy. Okay, whose is it, she says. In my business, the care that we provide uh, is expensive and uh, people have to be willing to to pay cash uh, uh, in order to do it. Uh, Business was down. Uh, Some months were not breaking even. That means that I have to pay my employees first and me last. There was a great amount of uncertainty around me. But I felt called to finally, for once in my life, put God first. And so I signed up online to automatically withdraw 10% of my salary each payday. There have been a time or two that I didn't take a paycheck from my work, but my offering still came out of my checking account. It made uh, things seriously tight. But a year later, I have to say, that my children and I have never gone without food or any necessities. We have, not, we have never not been able to pay a bill. We have been able to save some money along the way, and I've not missed a single week in tithing since I started this. Then she says, God is truly, and in capital letters, wonderful. I am more blessed than I could ever imagine. My company is hanging on in these tough times, but I have no worries whatsoever. I have complete faith that my children and I will be completely taken care of. I now know that I have to always be prepared to hear God in different ways. He's leading my life. I just have to be willing uh, to follow whichever path He leads me. Thank you for being non-conventional, for thinking outside of the box to reach those of us who are a little hard-headed. Thank you for never giving up on us and continuing to poke a little uh, at a time until one day we wake up and say, duh. (laughs) Thank you for giving us a challenge that has changed my life. Good stuff. And so I want to challenge you to, uh, to trust God and to test God in that area of your life. The second management principle is this, very quickly. Create margin and ask God to use it. Create margin and ask God to use it. First, you put Him first and then you create margin. That's what you do with the remaining 90%. Jesus tells another story about a farmer who has a bumper crop. And, uh, and when he has that crop, he says, what am I going to do with all of this? I guess I'll have to build bigger barns and take an early retirement and kind of hit easy street. And God calls him a fool. He says, you're dying tonight. Why aren't you dead yet? Well, you're going to be dead soon, okay? He says, you're dying tonight. Your life will be required of you tonight. Somebody else is going to get all your stuff, not because you're generous, but because you're dead. And then Jesus turns to the crowd in Luke 12, 21, and he says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. See, one of the reasons that you're not dead yet is that God wants to do more through the margin that you create in your finances to impact the world in a great way. How do you create margin? Two ways. You, 
either spend less or make more, you know. And uh, sometimes in spending less, we get sucked into what everybody else says that you need. And the truth is, what you and I think that we need didn't even exist five years ago. Isn't that true? Uh, and, and, and then on the other side of the equation, make more. Um, sell stuff you don't need. There's all kinds of stories. I wish I could give you, uh, have time for stories in this church where people have done just that. They've had garage sales, gone on eBay and sold things that they didn't need so that they would have margin, not just to consume, but so that God would have something to work with. The goal of creating margin in your life uh, is so that you can say yes to the opportunities that God brings to help someone else. Well, you know what? We challenged you to do that just before Christmas. And boy, did you ever. Take a look at this. So, this past December, we decided, uh, what if we all did something? What if we banded together and tried to bring hope to the world? We decided we would tackle a clean water issue. And uh, we called it Hope Epidemic. And so here's what we did. Uh, Each of us uh, tried to create just a little bit of margin uh, in our resources, uh, we, you know, uh, didn't have as many Diet Cokes or lattes or whatever it happened to be. We took the change and uh, we put it into a fund week after week called the Hope Epidemic Fund. And uh, we brought our offerings together on Christmas Eve and boy, the results were astounding. Hang on to your seat. You're not going to believe this. I didn't. Told you a couple of weeks ago I'd have a number. Here it is. 200 $87,374. Can you say, yay, God? I mean, we talk about being above and beyond all that we can ask or imagine, and I think that fits the description. 2010 is here, and it's begun with a cry uh, for water and hope from Haiti. And by the grace of God and your giving, uh, we're able to step up and meet some of the need. In fact, the water system is already on its way uh, to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, but there are more needs uh, to fill. And so I wanted to take a minute and talk to you about what's possible in 2010 uh, because of your giving. And this is Jason Surratt. And he is our pastor of mission. Jason, tell us about maybe what's possible uh, this coming year. Well, we know that about 1 billion people lack access to clean drinking water. And because of your generosity, uh, we're going to be able to do something about that. Not just giving water, but also building relationships with uh, missions, organizations, and countries where we're already currently working. So these are the places we're going to target this year. First of all, Togo, uh, we're going to put a well and a water system. And then in northern Kenya, we're going to put a couple of wells. So what's possible in the future? Well, because we have margin due to the giving at Hope Epidemic, uh, we're going to be able to respond even more in Haiti in the future. Uh, We'll be able to respond to other natural disasters and also uh, in places where we already have relationships. that awesome? That's what God can do with just a little bit of margin. Let me give you one more thought and we'll, we'll close. Um, the, th- the third thing that I learned from that story is that fear always keeps you from doing the right thing. You know, fear is what kept the servant from investing and in doing the right thing. Fear is why we uh, don't invest ourselves and 
We don't give because we're afraid. See, here's the truth. God is not in a recession. (laughs) How many of you are glad for that? God's abundance is never-ending. You know, a lot of times we treat God as if what He's given us might run out. It's, It's like we think of God saying, you know what, I'm giving you these abilities and resources, but be careful because we've had a recession here in heaven just like you have had on earth. In fact, I've had to sell some of the streets of gold in order to, you know, kind of do some of the things that, that I've... That I've no, that's crazy, isn't it? God, God's uh, abundance and His generosity is forever. Richard Foster in Celebration of uh, Discipline says this, uh, We cling to our possessions rather than sharing them because we're anxious about tomorrow. But if we truly believed that God is who Jesus says He is, then we don't need to be afraid. And when we come to see God as the almighty creator and our loving father, then we can share because we know that he will care for us. If someone is in need, we are free to help them. So I just want to challenge you. Don't let your fear keep you from doing the right thing. Maybe it's in the tithing issue. You know, you're afraid, well, where will the money come from? Or maybe it's in your, uh, your talent issue or your time issue. Maybe you've been afraid to volunteer, you know, in the church or in the community or in the world uh, because maybe you've started and stopped before and you're afraid that you'll do it again. Or maybe you're afraid that your schedule will get too, too full. Uh, you know, just, just do it. Maybe it's using your talent to help a nonprofit expand their reach. What are you afraid of? That you won't be able to follow through, that you'll be stretched too thin? Trust God. Put him first and create margin. Don't let fear keep you from doing the right thing because you've been given everything you need for success in life. Someday you're going to give an account to God. And the reason you aren't dead yet is because God wants to do something significant through you. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for our time together. Lord, I thank you for your plan for our lives. God, I thank you for your generosity. Now as we take just a few minutes to reflect and to respond to you, God, I just pray that um, your generosity would be reflected in us, in everything that we do, that our lifestyle would reflect a generous God who loves us and has more than enough. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.